0: You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky, a congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ Tradition. We are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice. But from time to time, you'll find guest preachers on this podcast, too. Thanks for listening. Nowadays, Christianity and its influence has long been waning in our society, and many of us Christians spend time justifying our faith normalizing what we believe, talking about peace and strength that we get from our faith, looking for points of connection with folks, and we talk about our faith communities, our churches, as friendly. Oh, we're welcoming. We're normal people. Don't worry. You'll feel comfortable with us. And then we gather for worship today and we're confronted with this really odd and disconcerting story from the Gospel of Luke. It is undeniably weird and otherworldly, a peculiar tale with strange visions and declarations. And then it may dawn on us that no matter how much we may try to appear normal, ours is a peculiar faith. Flannery O'Connor famously said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. And what an odd thing this 2,000-year-old gospel story is. Today's story is one that doesn't normally come up in the top ten list of Jesus' stories, Oh, we want to talk about the feeding of the 5,000, yes. The story of the lost sheep, of course. We want to include that one. Let the little children come unto me. You betcha that's going to be in our top ten. But Jesus on a mountaintop with his face and clothes shining as blinding white light and two dead guys show up, appearing from nowhere for who knows why, And then there's this booming voice from the sky scaring the disciples out of their minds. It's never high on the tell me the stories of Jesus list because it's a weird one. And if we're honest, it's a little bit absurd. Now, in general, though, we are very fond of mountaintop experiences as long as they follow a few guidelines, they should be peaceful and uplifting. They should take our breath away and leave us feeling special and hopeful for the future. Mountaintop experiences should be breathtaking. They should be Instagram-worthy. But here in Luke's gospel, we get this radically different experience. The entire scene is unsettling. The story tells us that they are up on the mountain praying. Well, Jesus is praying, and the disciples are in that trying-to-fight-off-sleep phase, shaking off the drowsiness, barely awake, and suddenly their tiredness is pushed aside as a scene unlike anything they have ever had before unfolds. The disciples see the glory of Jesus in dazzling light, and two figures, Moses and Elijah, are mysteriously there, With him. The word for glory in the Hebrew, not in the Greek in our text, but in Hebrew has the meaning of heavy or weighty. To be of great substance is to have glory. One scholar puts it, God is a heavy weight in this story. But glory is not a term we use much nowadays. Glamour, perhaps, power or charisma certainly but glory I mean what does glory even look like I didn't bring my bulletin up here I invite you to turn to your bulletin to the front page of your bulletin and there's a copy of a painting by Titian it's an altarpiece in the San Salvador church in Venice Italy. It's one of three pieces that he planned to paint but only completed two of them. The other one that was completed was an Annunciation piece. The unfinished one was of the crucifixion. And as you look at the painting, ask yourself where the light is coming from. Usually light comes from the sky or from somewhere maybe off of the canvas. And we see the source of light maybe illuminating one side, and then you can see the shadows on the other side. But here, the brightest light from the scene comes from Jesus himself. And Jesus is looking upward. He almost looks to be rising towards the clouds, moving toward God, emanating this light. And meanwhile, you see the disciples are kind of tumbling downward, backward, falling away from Jesus toward us, the viewers of the painting. The glory in the painting, as Titian imagines it, knocks us off our feet. It is a glory more than we can bear as we see the disciples with their hands up to protect themselves or shield themselves from the light. This is glory that is awe-inducing, that shakes us to the core. Titian painted this as an altarpiece. Can you imagine coming forward to celebrate Eucharist and worship and your eyes are drawn to this image in front of you of Jesus rising with this light surrounding him? As the broken bread, the body of Christ is placed in your hands, as you drink from the common cup filled with wine, as you taste these earthy components which are pulsating with the glory of God, That Titian paints for us. In the Gospels, the glory of God in Christ is always presented as paradoxical. It is a light that is revealed in darkness. It is a triumph that emerges from seeming defeat. It is when greatness is found in lowliness, when true freedom is experienced in obedience. It is revealed when the truth is that life is gained only when we lose it. And that the power of God is most present in weakness. The Gospels take great pains to convince us that whatever we thought we knew about glory is wrong. And today's reading is no exception as the disciples struggle to comprehend the meaning of this mysterious display. Now Luke carefully places this story immediately after Jesus speaks to his disciples about his own death. He's performed this great miracle of feeding over 5,000 people. His popularity is growing. The crowds are larger than ever. And Jesus turns and asks his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they reply, well, John the Baptist or Elijah or some other prophet. And Jesus follows up and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and says, you're the Messiah, of God, indicating that he understands that Jesus is the anointed one. He is chosen, set aside by God. It is a title of glory and of power. And it holds within it all the mythology and the hopes of prestige and conquest. In response, Jesus tries to set the record straight, telling them this. I am going to undergo great suffering. I'm going to be rejected, killed, and on the third day raised. And then he goes on and says, and if you want to become my followers, then take up your cross and follow, for you must lose your life to save it. Those ominous words are spoken before this display of glory in Luke. They have been left down at the bottom of the mountain because the light and the glory are too much on the mountaintop. As this mysterious moment is about to end, as Moses and Elijah are exiting stage left, Peter summons up some courage and speaks up again, and he says, It's as if he knows that this glory that has knocked him off his feet, he just wants it not to end. He just wants to keep it. And so he blurts out, Master, it is so good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But before he can finish his thought, God interrupts Peter in mid-sentence as a voice from a cloud declares, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Now can you imagine it being interrupted by God? (laughs) It could be a way of saying that despite our deepest longings, this glory moment can't be bottled up. It can't be saved for later. You can't build a chapel here and expect God to show up whenever you want. But I wonder if there's another reason, too, why God interrupts Peter's construction plans. I wonder if it's a gentle reminder to Peter and to us that you may be easily dazzled by shining light. But that's not the glory. That is not the glory. The glory is in the one right here who is my chosen one. He's the glory you need to follow. The glory is in Jesus. The one you've been walking with every day. The one that you break bread with. The one who heals the sick with you. The one who reveals my realm of shalom. Look for the glory in him and not on some Luke tells us they return back down the mountain in silence, not speaking of what they had seen. And this strange story serves as a pivot point in Luke's gospel. We're making our way through healings and miracles, through revealed teachings and powerful moments of liberation. But now the story is shifting. And Jesus makes a turn back down the mountain into the valley. And on the road, ultimately, to Jerusalem. We, too, are making a turn today. We've come to the end of Epiphany season. We've pondered moments of revelation. Many of us have been contemplating the meaning of our star words for this Epiphany season. And now, as we've seen how far we come, we start to look at where the journey will take us in the coming days of Lent. And we know the truth. We know the truth back down at the bottom of the mountain. Because we know our world is still painfully broken. People are still hurting. And that's what happens when the disciples and Jesus come back down and are greeted by the crowd. There's a desperate man who shouts and begs Jesus to heal his son from an evil spirit, and we've been told that while they were away on the mountaintop, the other disciples left behind had been unable to heal the man's son. You see, back down from the mountain, glory is so much harder to see. Responding to the man's request, Jesus heals the boy. Gives him back to his father, and Luke tells us all were astounded at the greatness of God. But before the disciples could dance with joy, Jesus reminds them yet again of the future to be. He says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. Jesus offers them a harsh reminder that glory does not come without cost. On the corner of 4th and Walnut Street, on what is now Muhammad Ali Boulevard in Louisville, Kentucky, is a historical marker to Thomas Merton. Some of you may have seen it. Merton was the Trappist monk who lived at the Abbey of Our Lady of Gethsemane, And the plaque marks an event that Merton wrote about that happened to him on March 18, 1958. It was a revelation of sort, and he wrote about that moment, that quote, he was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people. That they were walking around shining like the sun. Now, at the time, in 1958, Walnut Street was primarily a commercial street for the Louisville African-American community. In 1958, imagine, before the Civil Rights Act, before the Voting Rights Act, only four years after Brown versus the Board of Education was decided, it was a time and place that was divided by race, by prejudice, by economics. But there on that street corner, Merton saw the glory of God's world shining through the ordinariness and the brokenness around him. It was a moment of transfiguration, of seeing the glory that had often passed him by. In Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, which we heard this morning, Paul encourages a community splintered by division, to soften their hearts, to find in themselves and in one another the glory of God. He tells them, all of them in this divided church, even those with whom they disagree, that all of them are being transformed into the image of Christ. That through the Spirit, we bear in us the glory of Christ. I don't know about you, but I seldom feel glorious. But I invite you to take a look back at that painting of Titians. This altarpiece towering above where the worshipers would come to share in communion together. The primary source of the light is Jesus. It's emanating from the center, the top center of the painting. But there's another light source. Down at the bottom, notice that the back of Peter is illuminated from below and behind. That the leg and cloak of James are also illuminated. And the side and the hand of John that's raised, too. There's a light from somewhere underneath, from below. Light from those who would come forward to see this painting in worship. There's glory from us, just a bit, yet we almost don't notice it. As the body of Christ in the world, Paul tells us we are to be points of glory. We are to be light illuminating the darkness. Flannery O'Connor in her 1955 collection of short stories included a little tale called The Displaced Person. And the name of the piece harkens to the U.S. Displaced Persons Act of 1948, which eventually allowed for over 400,000 European refugees to immigrate to the United States. And O'Connor tells the story of a family of Polish refugees who resettle in rural Georgia after World War II. She introduces us to Mrs. McIntyre, who is a hard-nosed businesswoman who owns a farm and has reluctantly hired a Polish refugee, Mr. Guziak, who's referred to in this story most often as the displaced person. She's hired him to oversee her African-American farm workers, but she's suspicious of the man, and she's contemplating throughout the story firing him. And then there's the local priest, Father Flynn. He's an elderly man, and he visits the farm regularly, and we're not quite sure why, but Miss McIntyre suspects that he wants her to help more refugees and she's not a person of faith, and she complains that she can't take care of all these extra people. She's seen the newsreels, yes, of the death and destruction in Europe from the war, and rather than evoke sympathy in her, those images just cement her prejudices. She distrusts these refugees. And it doesn't seem to matter to her that they're fleeing that very violence she's seen. She has no compassion for them. So during one of the priest's visits, she goes on and on about these people and what a burden they are, angrily protesting that she didn't create the situation. And the old priest listens, but his eyes begin to wander behind Mrs. McIntyre to the lawn. And there on the lawn, she see, he sees a peacock. It's the last peacock of a big flock of peacocks that had been on the farm, 20 or 30 of them. The other one she had let die because she complained they were just another mouth to feed. But there's one left. And the peacock weaves its way through the story. It roams about unnoticed by almost everyone except for the priest who sees the peacock every time he comes to the farm. And in this moment, as Miss McIntyre is speaking, he sees the peacock just behind her stop, curve back his neck, raise his tail, and spread the feathers into a shimmering light. O'Connor describes the scene writing, quote, Tears of small pregnant sons floated in a green gold haze above his head. The priest stood transfixed, his jaw slack, and Miss McIntyre wondered whether she had ever seen such an idiotic old man. Christ will come like that he said in a loud gay voice and wiped his hand over his mouth and stood there gaping. In the story, Miss McIntyre keeps going on her rant. She's adamant that it's not her responsibility to help refugees. She says, I don't find myself responsible for all the extra people in the world. But the priest doesn't hear her because he's still transfixed by this peacock slowly walking backward, his head surrounded by this fully spread tale. And the priest mutters, the transfiguration. Miss McIntyre is confused by this, obviously, as you would be, and she responds, Mr. Guziak didn't have to come here in the first place. But the priest doesn't seem to see her or hear her, but maybe he does, for he replies, he came to redeem us. You see, the way of faith is like that, I think. Now and again, perhaps when we least expect it in places that we are not expecting it, we catch glimpses of God's glory. And we can't help ourselves. We have to point it out whenever we see it, even if we seem a little odd to others, that we see the glory of God in peculiar places when no one else notices. Later on in that story, the priest is back again, sitting on Miss McIntyre's porch, offering her some unwelcome teachings from the church. And he says, when God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, as a redeemer, and Miss McIntyre just interrupts him and says, as far as I'm concerned, Christ was just another DP, a displaced person another displaced person she has no need of. Today we know far too well the world is marked by profound brokenness, by suffering, by needless violence. But can we see within that brokenness the glory of God? And can we allow that glory to change us? You see, the glory of God is not restricted to mountaintops or to places that we call holy. All of creation pulses with the glory of God if we can only see it. There is a light which dazzles. There's a sacredness that surrounds us. If we only open our eyes. And there is a sacredness in each moment too. Even in the brokenness. If we manage to pay attention, if we manage to pay attention, we see that there's a sacredness inside each of us, inside those we discount, if we only have eyes to see, if only we allow ourselves to be disoriented by glory. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.